This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Welcome to Reimagine Law, and I'm delighted to be joined today by our special guest, Janetta Sidelekova, who's Associate in Climate Risk at global law firm Clyde & Co, and also a Biodiversity Risk Consultant at the Commonwealth Climate and Law Initiative. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Nigel. Well, Janetta, just thinking, thinking for our listeners, um, we've, we're talking with our listeners a lot the last few months around the new pathways in, le- in the legal sector, new pathways in careers. When I see your job titles there, doing something on climate risk and also a biodiversity risk consultant, can you just help our listeners a bit of, about, you know, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, I appreciate it. It's good to explain the basic terminology before we dive into the career path. So from a legal perspective, when we talk about climate risk and essentially biodiversity risk as well, as lawyers, we look at particular type of risk, which is liability risk. So it's climate liability risk and biodiversity liability risk. And both of them essentially mean risk of litigation or risk of fines or Uh, even reputational damage that can arise from uh, litigation that corporations and financial institutions face for their actions, inactions, disclosures, and failures to address climate risk or biodiversity risk. Wider than liability risk, both of those risks have other aspects. One of them is physical. So you can have a physical climate risk, which are essentially all you know the weather events we have been seeing wildfires uh cyclones uh that damage property so that is climate change causing physical damage to property and then the second type of risk is transition risk and that arises from as we have these changes in climate and biodiversity our institutions have to adjust they have to transition to a different economy And again, there could be regulation to enforce different obligations and failure of a company to address these regulations can result in liability risk. So usually liability risk, be it climate or biodiversity, is attached to those failures or mismanagement of the physical and transition risk. But as a lawyer, I look at the liability risk specifically. So from just in layman's terms, and I'm a layman here myself, certainly in terms of that area, that level of specialism. So is that sometimes almost a a proactive thing? So as you say, sometimes it's advisory, but with liability, it's almost when something's happened. So it's almost like an insurance angle to it, potentially. It can have both. So uh, from the perspective of what I do at Clyde & Co, it is actually more proactive. So instead of advising uh, clients on what to do, uh, once the liability risk materializes for them, we advise them what is it that they need to do to avoid that liability risk to make sure that they do the right thing. So, you know, the bottom line is you need to do the right thing, but because of how climate change and biodiversity are progressing, the speed is very, very fast. Uh, often people are not sure what the right thing is from legal perspective. So it can be a very proactive role, although, as you say, like it seems like obviously liability arises when somebody is sued on litigation. But the whole point is people are usually sued if they don't do something right. So we are telling them how to do it right and how to avoid that liability risk. Very interesting. And, and I can imagine that well, I, you know, around the world, no doubt, this is a very developing area, probably in, in terms of regulation, I guess, and many different parts of the world at different stages on that journey towards having regulations around this stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there is a there is a lot of cross fertilization between law and regulation. So a lot of our work, obviously, we focus on English law, where we are all qualified and have a lot of expertise. But in climate change, climate change litigation, you see so much cross fertilization from jurisdictions. So US uh, cases, Canadian cases, uh, you know, European cases being used not as a precedent because they're not binding, but the logic, the legal reasoning being used in different courts around the world. Less so in biodiversity, but biodiversity, we expect, you know, it's following the same path. There are fewer cases, but again, we expect there to be many more. So the advice you can deliver is so much more global than you would expect. And that is because there is so much cross-fertilization of, of legal principles and ideas used in these cases. Wow, this is really specialized. I mean, so, and again, just for me, to understand so the biodiversity risk and, and linking that to regulation the thought of regulation does that mean that there are regulations in places you say so if i'm in charge of a corporation or i'm a senior in a corporation are there certain things i should be doing in my from an environmental point of view is that almost the bio, like maintaining biodiversity for example so there are legal frameworks are not yet developed but what we see is exactly kind of this market and regulatory movement so in biodiversity the task task force on nature-related financial disclosures, for example, has published a beta version of the disclosure framework they're suggesting that uh, markets adopt. And the expectation is that that framework will become law in a couple of years, let's say 2024. So, and once it's become law, you need to comply with it. So what we are telling our clients is, we can explain this to you now so that you slowly transition to that compliance that we see coming in a couple of years. So it is also a preparatory work and you have to, uh, as a team, we have to keep on top of market and regulatory developments of this sort. So when there is publication of the beta framework, the second reiteration of that framework is going to be published in June 2022, so in a month. So we still have to you know, read it, analyze it, understand what it would mean for our clients so that there could be that proactive preparation. So yes, there is a lot of expectation of legal framework. So you know the climate change disclosure is developed by another task force, which is called task, task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Those have been put in law just in April 2020, so they are, going to, they are now mandatory for some companies. Uh, so, you know, the same trajectory is expected for biodiversity. That's fascinating. And, and I remember, Zanetta, when, um, when, we, when we spoke once before, you were, you were telling me I, I would also say educating me about the whole thing you gave me an example of the forest maybe something slightly different from what you're saying now but I remember I remember just being struck by how interesting and fast moving all this area is in terms of, you say the regulations catching up the laws catching up you're needing to guide companies there's potential liabilities I mean yeah. it's it, it must be it must be very complex it is very complex and I think the carbon trading example we were discussing uh before before this uh this recording uh, related yeah, to the idea that obviously in, at COP26, the climate change conference that took place in Glasgow in November 2021, uh, there was finally an agreement reached on uh, carbon markets under the Paris Agreement, so international carbon markets. And as such, obviously, there, there are still parts of that that needs to be refined. And one part of it is how would you deal with prevention of deforestation. So we know that carbon credits essentially allow you to 
kind of uh, have an activity which emits carbon somewhere or greenhouse gases somewhere, and you offset that activity by uh, purchasing credits that should sequester those greenhouse gases elsewhere. So that's the kind of broad idea. But the questions about the validity of those carbon credits are quite big ones. One of them is, what about nature? So forests do sequester a lot of carbon, but if a nation tells you, or you know, a particular body that is providing these credits tells you that we are going to use the money you gave us in these credits not to cut the forest down, you are not really contributing, you're maintaining the status quo. And there is a huge question whether this is a valid carbon credit. The danger of saying it's not a valid carbon credit is that you might in incentivize a behavior under which the forest will first be cut down and then the money will be paid in credits to reforest it, which is counter counterproductive. So a lot of these questions are still unanswered because uh, obviously, COP26 negotiations did come up with an agreement or come to an agreement on carbon markets, but especially the questions about conservation uh, and land uh, conversion, that's how it's called, haven't been completely answered. So we are waiting for COP27 in Egypt to kind of finally solidify these uh, answers to these questions. But that is, for example, an aspect that uh, we sometimes look at, uh, which is, as you say, extremely specialized, extremely niche. Uh, so there's a lot of research and a lot of knowledge going into it for my team as well. Are you optimistic as, as someone looking at the way we're trying to regulate the, the world, the governments of the world and the global organisations are trying to move stuff forward? I appreciate probably it doesn't move ever as quickly as one would want it to, but do you think it's moving in the right direction? Yeah, so there is, uh, it, we always say it's a mixed bag. After every conference, it's a mixed bag because it is moving in the right direction. There are a lot of controversies. So for example, carbon markets are like, they're, they're swarmed with controversies of, you know, just the idea of giving monetary value to nature without recognizing its intrinsic value. There is a lot of tension between uh, some indigenous recognition of intrinsic value of nature, its beauty, you know, health benefits it has for us, and then the kind of more uh, Western attitude, which is monetizing it. So a lot of controversies, which you feel a bit of setback because every controversy holds back the progress, whether, you know, either direction, it's just a discussion that you need to resolve. At the same time, you know, the direction, the fact that so many people are now dedicating their careers to it, the fact that so many people are willing to spend hours on calls with you without being paid for it just to share the knowledge and to exchange the experience uh, that is really encouraging and even uh, the recognition in uh, the final agreement of cop 26 the glasgow climate pact that we are now aiming for the goal of 1.5 degrees not the two degrees although the two degree goal is actually legally binding the 1.5 is not legally binding it's really important for me to see, even though I recognize that the final agreement, Glasgow Climate Pact, was eventually watered down a bit, I see this as a huge progress. Obviously, we could have gone further, we could have had much more ambitious agreement, but even timescales, which just not to be too technical, the timescales of uh, updating your ambition as a state used to be every five years. Now, after COP26, we are thinking as if the practice has changed to even two years or a year. And if you revise your ambition every year, every year you become more ambitious. And that is really encouraging to me to see. But overall, there is absolutely, and I appreciate it's a mixed bag because there's always a lot of disappointment of how much more could have been done and actually needs to be done. 
but I, I like the point you know with my coaching hat on you know as a qualified coach I, you know often you're very focused around goals so as you say perhaps renewing goals quite often is actually quite a nice way of thinking about this that actually that's progress in itself to actually people who say no we are going to stop and think about this again in in not too many months time now yeah. which is which is helpful absolutely especially with climate change where the yeah. science is progressing so quickly that Absolutely. what yeah. we agreed on five years ago now we know that it's climate change climate is changing faster the impacts are already felt by so many millions so i think if you have a scientific basis to increase the urgency and revise your targets more uh, frequently there is nothing wrong about it that's the right thing to do even if it, it's harder because obviously the amount of work that goes into revising your targets and your ambition is the the workforce and the capacity you, you have to commit to it so let's if i was to ask you to almost turn your mind back a few years now say we, with our listeners we often have people thinking about their different ways into the legal sector or perhaps they've just started towards the legal sector either at college or university or on an apprenticeship thinking about different pathways as well um if i was to ask you um Jeanette, what drew you first of all towards law in terms of thinking, perhaps that's an interesting direction for me. Yeah, so this is, I always love to answer this question in, in a different way. I would love to say I have always wanted to be a lawyer, but that's not true. I never wanted to be a lawyer until I was like 18. Uh, so I have no lawyers in family. I never had friends with parents who would be lawyers. I never had any indication that this is a way I should or could follow so I actually wanted to I had kind of two career options when I was in my early teens and then also later so I wanted to be an anthropologist first because I was fascinated by cultures and then uh, I started getting interested in languages because I'm from Slovakia my mother tongue is spoken by around six million people so you don't really get fast if you don't or far if you if you uh, don't speak other languages so I, I was obviously studying a lot of languages and um, through languages, I thought I'm going to be a linguist. I'm really interested in the comparison of languages and how they developed, and I was really fascinated by it. But then in my very last year of high school, I was asked to do a presentation on a piece of legislation that uh, enabled, uh, during the Second World War, uh, war it enabled uh, persecution and murder of Jewish population on large scale. Essentially, I was asked to take this piece of legislation, which was called Jewish Code in Slovakia, and I was, I was supposed to analyze it and I was supposed to present for my class what were the provisions and what, what implications they had. It was obviously a tough task and I wasn't a lawyer back then. So when I was reading it, I just couldn't believe that this is just like words on paper, like nothing else. But because it was a legislation, it was officially law, it legislated persecution, discrimination and murder on large scale of a huge population back then in Slovakia. So I... No, it was a kind of a transformational moment because I was reading it and I wasn't, I couldn't understand how just words on paper could do this. And I kind of committed myself to understanding one day how this is possible that words on paper can have such a, such a power over people. So that was the first moment. And then obviously the reasonable choice would be to study in Slovakia where I, uh, where I was born and educated until the high school. But because I still loved languages and law is based on language, I thought, what if I try to go to a country where I, sp I speak the language, but I will be educated together with native speakers and it will be so much harder for me to stand out, to be the best, because I'll be competing with people who are by definition and by, you know, 
uh, the nature of being a native speaker better than I am. So that was that that's what motivated my decision to come to the UK just to see whether I can make it, uh, whether I can make it in the environment that would be much more competitive than studying in my mother tongue. And that is why I applied to study at the University of Glasgow and essentially started my legal journey at LLB in the UK. So that's really interesting. So the message there, perhaps for people or many messages for them to take away. But one message is stretch yourself and look for things that are going to challenge you uh, as well. I mean, it's, it sounds like in, in terms of a decision you made, you made the decision. I want to challenge myself here and put myself oh, in, yeah. in an environment Absolutely. that's actually going to be quite hard for me. And it was it was it was disheartening in the beginning because I was really bad at it. <laughs> it took like three months for me to start understanding uh, the basic legal principles, but also it really yeah. pushed me because I, I, you know, you don't want to be the worst in the class. You, you want to be, you yes. want to kind of be at least average, if not the best. So it mm. did push me to then like study more, study really hard to the point where I finished my first exams with really high grades. So after three months, I kind of recovered from the linguistic shock and everything. Mm. And then eventually, I remember one of my exams, they asked me whether they could uh, publish it anonymously because my answers were like very good and they wanted to show other students how you know the answer could look and I was really proud because it was like the three months were a huge struggle for me but just getting to that stage kind of confirms that you are on the right track the right journey and also that you you can be good at something if you really put your mind to it and perhaps your heart and uh you kind of cut on your sleeve and other things but uh overall as a strategy I think it, it worked really well and that was a that was a kind of a theme of my entire education just going somewhere where I knew I wouldn't fit but with some hard work I could eventually make myself fit at the end. Very interesting and and so okay so if we roll forward a bit so as you say you you wanted to study internationally so you, you went to you went to Glasgow you'd had that original interest and you described it of what drew you to, towards law and then when you started thinking okay what about the next step or the next step again I'm very interested for our listeners in decision making and, and, and kind of options you considered and, and things like that. So, so how did how did you see your next step and, and why perhaps as well for our listeners? Uh, so uh, my next step after Glasgow, I actually took a gap year where uh, which I dedicated to uh, getting experience. So I got a lot of so it wasn't traveling. It was traveling to an extent, but for work. So I never traveled just uh, for the experience, unfortunately. But I always traveled to get some break experience. And even during my LLB, I did the same. So I really enjoyed studying law, every single subject, apart from family law, I have to say, I was really bad at family law. And I really want to acknowledge it because I feel that every time we write a CV or put stuff on LinkedIn, we always put the good things. And then it like makes a picture of, oh, we are so successful and smart. So I was really bad at family law, but uh, there were other subjects I wasn't so good at, but I really enjoy all of them, but for family law, sadly. But so, you know, I was I was really split because I enjoyed my commercial law courses. Then I enjoyed my human rights courses. I did environmental law and that was great. So I was like, so what am I going to do? So I decided to explore and I decided I am not going to just follow what everybody was telling me to, which is get a training contract, qualify and then practice commercial law because I just didn't know whether that was right for me. So even during my undergrad and then during my gap year, I decided to try three things. So I did a diplomatic internship. I went to New York got a scholarship to pay for that internship because the UN back then didn't pay. I'm not sure whether they pay for internships now. But I went to New York to do an internship at UN headquarters for a couple of months to see whether that was for me. I discovered it wasn't diplomacy. I admire people who work in diplomacy because 
I was just really disheartened by the pace of it, how obviously you need to bring consensus of so many people, you need to get them on, uh, on board with an idea. And uh, I just I, I just don't think I would have patience for it, to be honest. I was I was in New York when um, the Ukraine crisis was unfolding in 2014 and then also Ebola. So I, my agenda was Ukraine and Ebola and not much got done during my time there. And I was really disheartened by it because these crises really need a quick and prompt response. So um, again, a lot of admiration for people who do that. But I felt with my personality and kind of a very strong preference for action, I just felt like I just couldn't bear it and couldn't be good at it as a result. So my second option was I went to work for a few NGOs and I wanted to see, is this something for me? So obviously a lot of purpose-driven NGOs, um, I worked for an environmental NGO as well, and I was exploring that environment. I absolutely loved the people. They were lovely. They were doing, again, a lot of uh, incredible work, but it was too slow for me again. I felt like because there is no deadline to it or no kind of the amount of pressure you experience in legal practice is different. It's higher. I felt, again, that my potential wasn't truly fully explored because I because there was no pressure things can get postponed and things just don't get done so quickly so a lot of purpose-driven people wonderful people as well but for the pace just wasn't right for me so I thought okay the last kind of uh, one was commercial law and I did a commercial law internship in my native Slovakia I went to Prague to the Czech Republic to London as well so I had quite a few experiences of different law firms from size of one single lawyer to size of 10 lawyers to like good you know 300 so I kind of compared and um, I found that being really the place where I was able to flourish so because of the pace was really right for me it was really quick and um, dynamic and uh, I again did you know copyrights then I did patents I did energy markets and renewable energy and as part of my internships and through those, I really found uh, interest um, in environmental matters, how they related to energy. So after that year, I decided to go back to school. I went to do my master's at the University of Cambridge, where I focus on environmental law, where obviously you can link it now to my climate change practice, biodiversity practice. It all kind of links back to that experience and profiling of the fact that I wanted a purpose, but I also wanted a really fast-paced, dynamic environment. Where, which I found in a commercial practice focused back then on renewables. And by the time I started training, which was in 2019, there was a real climate change practice I could qualify into eventually. So that was a long story, but that's how I went about it. No, but, and what I take from that, again, thinking of what we've often talked about on the podcast about careers is the idea of experimenting as well. So, oh, yeah. you know, as you say, the idea of, okay, I'll look at the UN, I'll look at NGOs. I'll, and, and I think some of the things you said there, I remember on, on some interviews I did with very experienced um, lawyers uh, a few years ago, there was one lawyer I remember talked about, think about the pace you want to be in and the environment and the how, you know, so think of where you fit your style, the way you like to work, you know, how quick do you want it to feel? How, as you say, is it, more, is it about getting loads of stakeholders on board for a big decision? And that might feel slow but also as you say it, it just takes a lot of time to do it so yeah. again what's the pace you want to work at that becomes becomes really um becomes really critical not the pace you want to work at the pace of the environment you want to be in yeah, uh, i absolutely. think so you know and experimenting as you say with different you know larger organizations smaller organization big teams small teams international teams teams focused around this type of topic yeah. i think that's one message I, I would just reiterate for our listeners really that i take from your story really 
Yeah. And also, I think one of the best career advice I've ever got from a colleague at an organization called the Chancery Lane Project that I was seconded to as a, as a trainee, she told me that your career will be very long. And that was a really, really powerful idea because what it meant, and when you think about it, like we are not going to retire at 65, we will, if, if ever, you know, it will be much longer for us, which is not a bad thing because work is a lovely, lovely part of life if you enjoy what you do. So what essentially she meant is that there is time for experimenting, like you don't have to end your uni at 21 and then go straight to law firm and then you know go through all those like you uh, you know all the ranks and kind of become a partner because you you have a time to actually check whether this is the right path for you if you find that this is the right path for you obviously go for it but yeah just checking the diplomacy the international law the NGO world it just first of all you make connections that you can then bring into your practice eventually wherever you end up and also like our careers will be long we'll be working for a long time so there is a there is space for getting things wrong or finding yourself and I yeah. think that really gave me a lot of comfort when I uh when she gave me this advice and I was like oh my god she's so right like I can make a mistake that's fine yeah and I think career experiments is you know there's lots of stuff written about that which I completely you know which I'm a big fan of do your little experiments either around the edges of your your job and in terms of exploring what what you like and what you enjoy and how does that guide me for the next one so no that's that makes that makes perfect sense We've talked a little bit about your current role right at the beginning, um, Jennifer. But so I suppose if we were to conscious of time, if we were to, to to wrap up and think about, I mean, you've you've spoken, you've given us a fascinating insight, as you say, into the types of issues that there are now around climate risk and biodiversity, a pathway towards it, how you experimented, how you stretched yourself. Um, what are some of the things in terms of skills that perhaps? some of the law school students who might be listening to this or, or people even before they've even considered law or going mm -hmm. to law school in terms of skill sets they might need to think about what's your career to date uh, said to you in terms of I don't know the mindsets you need to bring to this and the skill sets you need to build yeah yeah absolutely so obviously because my career in terms of the professional past post internship one has been in commercial law firm this might not apply to every field so I would just have a disclaimer that I don't want to uh, make an impression of an expert on this because I can only speak from my own experience but I would go back to my training with Clyde & Co so you know I joined as a trainee in 2019 obviously I was one of the COVID trainees so I spent most of my training contract at home uh, adjusting wasn't hard for me I'm kind of inherently an introvert so uh, working from home wasn't wasn't hard for me at all um, obviously developing relationships was, diff uh, was was important and you have to develop relationships differently when you work from home again it wasn't difficult I always you know I don't know what to do as an introvert I read a book about it so I always read books when I was unsure about certain things so um, just looking at the training contract it really helped me to do non-traditional seeds so obviously you need to do traditional seeds you need to do your litigation seed you need to do some transactional work to learn how to draft contracts but i applied for a seat in a client code data lab which is this innovation hub that client co has which essentially puts a trainee in a position of a link between lawyers and machine learning engineers 
And you come there and you know nothing. It's really scary because a trainee before you speaks a language that you hardly understand. But six months later, you speak the same language, which is a really nice feeling to have. And I went to Data Lab because I was motivated by the amount of data that climate change science generates and the fact that I couldn't read it. I, you know, I had spreadsheets with data and I couldn't read them at all. And I was like, I need to understand data science, at least as much as a lawyer needs. Obviously, I'm not going to become an expert, but I will have basic skills. I need to understand artificial intelligence. I need to understand how machine learning operates because those tools help us understand vast quantities of data efficiently. So I went there. It was a wonderful six months of, of my training where I was working with a machine learning engineer. And he was, he was the most wonderful person capable of explaining to me very difficult things in language I understood. And, um, you know, I help, I, learn how to code in SQL, which is just, just for listeners, the easiest coding language. Not like it, it's not a particularly admirable skills to have a skill to have when you speak to machine learning engineers. For me, it was a big deal. Um, so you know, I started to kind of understand how coding operates. And that is essentially what you need. And then I started to understand how data operates so that I was able to read data of documents we got later on in, um, in other seeds I had. I was able, I think I told you, Nigel, before we had this call, I was able to discover a fraudulent document on the, on the basis of metadata of the document because I knew how to look at metadata. I knew how to read the metadata. All of a sudden, I look at the document that I was sent and I was like, I think this is fraudulent. I explained it to people I was working with. And later on, we discovered it was. And fraud was then a basis of the case that we had. So it was, you know, the skills I was able to bring to my other seats on the basis of that experience was, uh, you know, the skills were just so unique. So I think maybe the message, I mean, Nigel, are so much better at summarizing these messages than I am, but I felt as a lawyer, you know law, like you've studied it, you are trained in law, like, and you're expected to be good at it. And obviously you are having studied it for so long. And I felt that as, as I was training, it was the extra legal experience. It was, and for climate change and biodiversity, especially reading of data, being able to understand scientific reports, uh, which, you know, I started reading and understanding and understanding how you can make it efficient. I think that's the urgency of climate and biodiversity crises is so, the urgency is so high that you just need to use the new tools you have to guide your decisions because the decisions are big ones. They have to be made now. They have to be informed by data. But if you have thousands of spreadsheets of data, you need a helping hand of technology. So, you know, it was a big picture that I took and uh, I was very absolutely delighted and grateful for the opportunity to be in Data Lab. So the skill set was very extra legal, I would say but really important scientific um, ability to understand scientific text, ability to read data and then deploy those abilities in your area of practice. I think that that's probably the, the best kind of learning I have taken from my training contract. That's fascinating. So that just summarizes perfectly what we've often spoken about in here, that the future, I think, is a multidisciplinary future. As you say, yeah. you know, you have, you'll have your core but then so many things are going to be relevant, whether it's almost an industry sector like climate change or, or um, biodiversity. There'll be different skill sets, different um, you bridging between different areas of expertise and different types of experts as well to almost package this all together and make sense of it for ultimately for the clients. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. so it, it just it's fascinating, isn't it? It just becomes a really multidisciplinary future. So I think for all of you listening, you know, I hope that that summary that Jeanette has just given us there is just a. A really interesting specific case study of in Janetta's areas of expertise of um, 
of what this looks like in terms of a skill set. So uh, that's been absolutely fascinating today. Maybe if I could add, I would say like it never ends, like the learning never ends. Like, you know, I'm, I've been trying to learn how to code in Python because that's the hardest language. If you can code in Python, it's a, it's a skill. I don't have it yet, but you know, like you kind of keep learning first because you're interested, the second because it's relevant to your, to your career. And, you know, even now, as we are expanding into biodiversity risk with my team, just reading all those biodiversity land degradation uh, papers, the information you can you can take from it and kind of note down, for examples, practical examples for clients is really, really relevant. So it never ends. And that's one of the beauty of it, because you will never achieve, you know, you will always have something to, to strive for. So it, it will never be fulfilled, which is the the thing that can drive you throughout your life and career. I think that's the other thing about the future because of the fact everything is going to be multidisciplinary and things are so fast moving now. The, the, the future is about lifelong, lifelong learning. And I know that's often a phrase used kind of in a bit of a casual way, say, yes, we all need to be lifelong learners, but you've given us a great example of, okay, well now they've developed this code or now I should try this, or I realize now this is really important. So it's a constantly evolving journey. And I remember speaking to very senior people who, who were say partners in law firms and they said do you know the best people who are always the most effective partners over many many years they were the ones who were always still interested in learning and i think all for all of you listening you know again janette has given us a really interesting insight there into at the beginning of your your career or, or developing your career now into your area of expertise how important learning is but that learning habit and, and that curiosity and that I, I would use the word curiosity that you've highlighted for me again as well that I think is, is is a key skill too. So, wow, that's that's been absolutely fascinating, Jennifer. Thank you so much for this for that insight into the whole area of, of you know how you develop your career, but also you know demystifying a bit climate risk, biodiversity, new areas of governance and regulation, and how that links to things we're all watching on the news, such as COP, you know the the COP meeting, as you say, and where the world's going on climate change. So, um, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, Nigel. For all of you listening, we hope that's been um, interesting, giving you an insight into another new area of, of the legal of the legal world. And uh, join us for another episode of Reimagine Law soon. Thank you. Mm-hmm.